will be reading from Psalm 29. Honor the Lord, you heavenly beings. Honor the Lord for his glory and strength. Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. He makes Mount Hermon leap like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes the barren wilderness quake. The voice of the Lord, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips the forests bare. In the temple, everyone shouts, glory. The Lord rules over the floodwaters. The Lord reigns as king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses them with peace. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you were well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul. Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. 
I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. So, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First, to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all of Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is what the Jews seized me for in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have, but I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, This man's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. When I was a children's pastor, uh, we ran a number of day camps every each summer that reached out to the community. And I was a part of them for... A long time, probably about 17 years I was a part of these. I was, one of the, I was there the first summer they ran them, and uh, I kept doing them all the way up to 2011 when I left the church. And the last number of years I was there, we had about 300 kids through our day camps every summer. It was a really neat community outreach. And, uh, of course, there's some children who came back every year. We got to know families, but there's some children who... You got to know in a more unique fashion, shall we say. Um, and, and it was fun watching, getting to know some of these community children go, grow and have a chance to begin to their lives about God and faith. But a few of the children needed, a, shall we say, a bit more of a guiding hand in their behavior at the day camps. 
And it seemed like every year we were telling them the same message. No, you can't do this. No, you can't speak that way to others or some other message that was similar. Every single year, we would tell these kids this exact same thing. And uh, my wife will probably remember two of them, one guy and one girl, who for six years, we had this conversation with each of them at every camp they went. And by the grace of God, they came to alternating camps. I don't think they ever attend the same week, the same time. So it was great. We were able to really love them. Um, but, and as much as I love the kids, and these were all great kids, you'd think they'd learn the message after a few years at least. Well, then at some point I became a parent. And I realized it's not just at day camps that messages need to be repeated. And I'm not just talking about all the things my girls need to remind me of all the time. There's things I seem to repeat to them as well. The truth is our culture really values repeating messages. The whole basis of advertising and commercials is that if a message is repeated and heard enough times, people will remember it. For communication experts, repetitions helps the message sink in so we can recall the information later on. And back in the 1930s, a communication rule was created that states a message needs to be heard seven times before somebody retains it. And growing up in my house, we had the rule of 30. After 15 times of uh, trying to get me to hear a message and act on it, my parents would just throw up their hands in the air and send me to my room and try another 15 times later on. It was, uh, I wasn't always the best listener as a kid. As a church, repetition of information has become more and more important as attendance patterns in the church have changed. And we've recognized that for everyone to hear a message we want to communicate, uh, we have to communicate it over a month in multiple ways. We do the e-news, we do, sometimes we'll do community life, we do verbal in person with people. Um, so one thing you'll notice is we'll try and communicate meetings and information over multiple weeks with our social media as well. And lately, one of the things we've done is we've been trying to communicate the CUCC with the SKMB. Ben's been very good at mentioning the acronyms, uh, which I still don't understand why we love acronyms so much in the MB world, but that's beside the point. Uh, essentially, it's an agreement where we covenant with other churches across Saskatchewan to hold to a common understanding of key beliefs and statements while we all work towards the gospel ministry we're called to. But to make sure we're communicating, we've had to mention it multiple weeks in multiple different ways. Sometimes it feels like it's just repetitive, right? I've heard that. I've heard that. I've heard that. But think about other things in the church. The Lord's table. This is a repetitive behavior within the church. And it's repetitive for a reason. We celebrate Christmas repeatedly for a reason. And I can tell you, once you've preached a dozen Christmases, you really feel like you're repeating the message again and again, and, and that's because it's a message worth repeating. Same thing with Easter, same thing with Pentecost and other holy days. And while the rules of repetition may have started in the 1930s, it really isn't new. And Scripture itself is filled with repetition. 
I know Pastor Ben and I were talking this week about his sermon next week and uh, about Acts and how he commented on how repetitive uh, Acts is at the end. The, the section we're looking at today, starting in chapter 23 on to 28, uh, and it's hard to keep trying to find new angles on these repetitive texts. And so today we read Acts 26, but really the section of passage for today's sermon is Acts 23 to 26. And it is very repetitive. It's Peter, it's Paul going before group, after group, after group, trying to defend himself as they, they hear him out, or people want to get him killed or get him imprisoned. And when it comes to all this repetition, I think sometimes we can gloss over. Have you ever had that experience when you're reading, like, okay, this is just repeating itself? There's a psalm, his love endures forever, every other line, his love endures forever. I know sometimes I read that, and after the fourth or fifth time, it becomes just common, unless I'm intentional about reading it intentionally. Have you ever stopped, though, to wonder if the repetitions we find in Scripture are there for a reason? Is there a purpose to it? So what I want to do today is I want to look at some of the overview of this larger passage because of how repetitive it is, how repetitive it is. Yes, Acts is Luke's account of the early church ministry, and it's especially focused on Paul in the second half of Acts. And we believe God inspired Paul in his ministry. And we believe God inspired Luke to record down the work of Paul in his ministry. And we see that in both the book of Luke and the book of Acts that Luke wrote. And we believe that God inspired both of those. So we need to recognize that if God was inspiring, inspiring Scripture when it was written down, as it is. What is written down is for those who would read it. That includes us. The message of Scripture is for you and me. It's not just some historical record that we're privy to that we try to glean information from. It's a message God desires for you and me to hear, to engage with. And it's being communicated through Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so that means when we find repetition, it's there for a reason. And we see that today. And we see that in this repetition, as we look at this larger passage, there's some lessons we can glean when we look at the larger picture of those chapters, and we can learn from them. And so we're going to dive into that today. And really what this section does is it's showing us how did Paul, who wasn't one of the 12 disciples, continue the work of Jesus and the apostles? And it shows us a section of his life of several years that were hard, that were difficult and challenging. He was imprisoned for a couple of years in there. 
And this is given to us so we can learn and glean from it. So I want to back up and review kind of what happened in chapters 21 to the chapter we read this morning so we can get the overarching story that's there. So in chapter 21, Paul is preaching in Jerusalem, and those who opposed him get the city in an uproar and were trying to kill Paul. This becomes a theme (laughs) as the book goes on. The Roman commander in Jerusalem intervened and arrested Paul. Paul convinces the commander to let him speak to the crowds around him, and he shares his story of his past, his present, and future, as we talked about last week in the sermon. The crowds get angry with him for what he's saying, and the Roman centurion and commander sees Paul. And next, he's brought then before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel. And Paul addresses them. And Paul knew some of them were Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he decides to talk to them about the resurrection of the dead, knowing this would get a good conversation going between the two groups since Sadducees adamantly denied any resurrection and the Pharisees were in support of it. Uh, Paul knows how to get a good conversation going, kind of like Pastor Ben does in our ADC classes. And again, a great uproar ensues over Paul, and the Roman commander feared for Paul's safety, seized him, and then (coughs) Paul shares, yet again, what God has done. And God tells Paul that he's going to share in Rome just like he shared in Jerusalem. The Roman commander learns of a plot to kill Paul and then sends Paul to Governor Festus in Caesarea. So Paul's moving out from Jerusalem and Paul is going towards Rome, essentially. And in chapter 24, we read about Paul's trial before Governor Festus. And this is now the third group since chapter 21, the one that Paul faces since people oppose what he is teaching. Think about this. All these people want Paul quieted and to stop teaching. And instead, what happens is he keeps getting audiences given to him where he gets to share what happened in his life and who God is and what God is doing. I I just love that. Uh, They don't want to hear his teaching, but the very persecution and aggression towards Paul avails him a platform to preach reaching farther and farther out from Jerusalem. And in the conversation with Felix, we see the Jewish leaders making nice with the Roman governor. Uh, They're talking about the peace they have under Felix and what wonderful reforms and how thankful they are for him. And then they turn on Paul and the troubles he's causing, twisting what Paul did and said to make the worst possible impression impression they could on on the governor. Paul then speaks, and he just speaks the truth. He admits the things he did and points out what he did not do. Felix ends up holding on to Paul for a while while waiting for a commander named Lysias to come. And during this time, Paul is brought before Felix and his Jewish wife, who took time to listen to Paul again and again. Again, more audiences for Paul. In fact, we're told that he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. We read that in verse 24. Paul was held for two years 
and Governor Felix was eventually replaced by Festus. So the Jewish leaders still want Paul turned over them. And so Festus, like Felix, wants to look into this. And Festus now has another hearing. And we lose the sense of time because it's such a compressed amount of passages. Years passed where Paul's in prison. And I'd love to know how many conversations Paul had in that time frame with other people. And Paul, a Roman citizen, declares he shouldn't be handed over to the Jews. He defends himself to some point. And again, he doesn't lie. He states the fact. But then in the end, he makes a statement. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus grants that Paul will go to Caesar. So here was another hearing, and there's still more to come. Festus talks to King Agrippa, who is visiting about Paul, and Paul's asked to give a hearing to Agrippa, which brings us to the passage we heard read today. And once again, we see Paul sharing his story. He speaks about who he was and how he was persecuting followers of Jesus, and even states he was obsessed with hunting them down. He shares again about his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He shares how he obeyed Jesus and was called to minister to the Gentiles, and that's what he is doing. He shares that this is in keeping with the prophets and Moses. Festus was there listening, calls Paul insane, and Paul refutes that and talks to Agrippa, asking if he believed in the prophets. And I love Agrippa's response. Do you think you can make me a Christian in such a short time? And Paul's response is, whether a short time or a long time, I just want to see you following Jesus. Agrippa leaves declaring this man should have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Agrippa may not have been persuaded, but he was sympathetic to Paul. So in reality, where we're at at the end of chapter 26, in some ways is not that different than where we were back in chapter 22. Paul's imprisoned, waiting. So it may seem not much has changed, but what has changed is Paul's had numerous avenues again and again to preach the gospel and share his story. Again and again and again. Do you see the repetition in this story of how he keeps getting these opportunities to share and share and share? And the message is very similar every time, though different as he talks to different people. And as Paul's slowly moving towards Rome to his hearing with Caesar, what do we see? We see the gospel spreading throughout the world. Now, we mentioned near the start that repetition has a purpose. We're not just historical observers to this story, but we are participants in the text. We're the people God inspired Scripture for. This text is written for us, for every person who's exploring Jesus and his work in the world after he ascended to heaven. God has given us this text. We understand how he worked in the world then and how he works in us today. So what do we gain from repetition here? Repetition has a definite purpose and place in this passage. 
First, repetition shows importance. Paul's ministry is important. And we can get lost saying, well, he's in prison. How important can it be? And yet, showing us these details, Luke is saying, you need to understand these are important steps along the way in the ministry of Paul. He's having impactful conversations with people. The gospel message is being proclaimed and spoken. Now, we might think, well, this isn't really like a Billy Graham crusade. He doesn't have auditoriums of 50,000 people. How important can it be? In the kingdom of God, very important. By our world standards, maybe not. But we're talking the kingdom of God here. That's our focus, not the world. So the repetition is making sure we know this is important that this is happening. This isn't just filler to get to the end of the book. We have something to learn from this. Second, repetition shows the historicity of the event. The more details we have, the more retelling, the more a historical basis we have and we can understand the context in which Paul is ministering. This isn't just a story that somebody is telling. These are historical events that happened in the world at that time. These are real things and real conversations and real people, and it matters. God was at work in history. And we need to recognize that. People will sometimes say, oh, the Bible is just a book of stories made up. No. They are historical events that happened. Now, I want to be clear. That doesn't make Luke's account a purely objective historical account. His goal is to tell us the history of the early church and Paul's ministry so we can grow in faith and be built up by it. So there's a purpose that's being written, but it is rooted in history and based on those facts and details, and we get to see it when we look at it. Luke really wants to give that accurate account for those reading. And so the repetition should draw our attention to that. Repetition also shows us different perspectives, different nuances. So as we encounter each of Paul's engagements, we start seeing that this is not somebody who's reading from the same script with every single conversation. We get different perspectives and a different understanding of Paul as we look at the different stories of his encounter. We start to see the continuity of who Paul is and all those things. And in this case, I really believe that repetition shows the integrity and continuity of Paul's ministry. It shows the length and time and what it consists of. This is Paul, God's appointed minister to the Gentiles, and he spends two years in prison waiting for the outcome. Before that, he had hearing after hearing, hostile crowd after hostile crowd. And yet in that, we see the consistency of his ministry through all the ups and downs. These were not fun years. He was suffering and struggling and had people wanting to kill him and attack him. And yet that's not what he verbalizes in defending himself. 
what he verbalizes is the work of God in his life and in the world. He consistently, repetitively, despite difficult circumstances, Paul's focus is solely on God, what God is doing. And we see in Paul a Christ-like attitude. He's not a pushover. He will speak the truth, but he speaks with respect against those who would have him killed. He doesn't attack others. He doesn't belittle others. He doesn't demean others. How refreshing is that? How unusual is that? He faces these people knowing that they are people that God loves and God sent Jesus to save. And so he communicates with each of them with value and respect. Can we say the same when we're facing adversity? When we get into those conversations that seem to be more and more common in our culture? I think we can learn that from Paul as we look at this journey he's on, and we take that broad over perspective, the consistency of his character in preaching the gospel, the message he preaches, the love he shows for others is important. So what else do we learn from this broad passage of Scripture besides that repetition has some benefits? Well, I think we learn that the message we share has to reflect the people we share it with. Paul is articulate and adapts his message to his audience. His overall message is the same. I'm not saying we change the core of the gospel message. We don't change what Jesus did or what God is doing or the work of the Holy Spirit. But how he communicates varies depending on who he's talking to. He is gracious and non-aggressive. He's not a pushover. But he's also not distanced or disconnected from those people that he's talking with. He genuinely seems to love these people, and he wants the message of God's love to be communicated in a way that they will engage with. And so he clearly communicates. And he communicates in a way that's relevant. I think it's very easy when you're in the church to buy into programs. And, and there's value in programs in the church. We need them. But I've always struggled when I've been in an evangelism program where I'm given a script. Okay, step one, greet them. Hello, how are you? Step two, tell them God loves you. God loves you. And you go through these steps, and at the end, do you wish to make Jesus the Lord of, life, Lord of your life and accept his forgiveness of sins? And you go through the script, but you've not built any relationship, any engagement with them. You don't understand who they are. You haven't heard their story or where they're at or what they're struggling with. You don't even ask what God's doing in their life or see that. I'm not trying to make little of evangelism campaigns because I value them. There's been a place for them and a role for them. But when we do evangelism disconnected from the people we're ministering to, Nowhere do I see Jesus being like that in his ministry. I see Jesus as someone who engages with the people he's talking with, and I see the same thing in the very heart of Paul's ministry. 
We need to make sure that our message is relatable to the people we're talking with. And that means stopping and listening, having conversations, engaging, understanding the culture that we're in and where people are coming from. And so as you read through these chapters, you're going to see the strong consistency in Paul's message, but each defense is unique and tailored to the audience which Paul is speaking. He doesn't have that tunnel vision of, the only goal is to communicate the same message to as many people as possible. Instead, he focuses on the people he's sharing with and what they need to know based on the context of who they are. The focus for Paul is preaching the gospel for transformation of lives, not preaching the gospel to check off a box on a to-do list. And then the other piece is we preach in all circumstances. And we see that with Paul. All these times people want to attack and imprison Paul, and yet that's not his first priority in speaking. When he speaks, it's to preach the truth of Jesus, the work of God in his life again and again in every encounter, whether formally or informally, Paul takes advantage of every opportunity. He doesn't have his relationship with Jesus in a box that he pulls out on Sunday mornings or at the small group Bible study that he's in. His relationship with Jesus is forefront in his life and shapes everything he does. Now, when we put these three things together, the repetition we see, the relevance, the consistency in communicating, I think it points us to one larger truth in this passage. That the gospel is the root of our identity and not just the message we share. I think sometimes we see the gospel as being the words we speak, just the message. And if we make it the simpler, the better, then people can understand it quickly and concisely. But Paul is showing us something deeper and broader than just a message in these chapters. Yes, Paul speaks his story, and the gospel is communicated, but Paul is showing us that we're more than people with a message of words. What we're seeing is that we are gospel people. We don't just have a gospel message, but we are gospel people. We are transformed and changed by the work of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not just getting the nuts and bolts communicated in a message. The gospel is living out the good news of Jesus' transformation in our lives, in both our words and our actions. What we share comes out of who we are and how we live based on being transformed by the work of Jesus Christ. I want to be a part of a church that's made up of gospel people, not just people who can say a gospel message. I want it to be at the root of our identity as followers of Jesus. And Paul is not just about a message being communicated. Yes, he uses that avenue abundantly time and time again, but he demonstrates in these chapters that he is transformed by the good news of Jesus, and he is through and through a gospel person. 
We are the gospel witness ourselves. The gospel message is not some disembodied words that we recite. We are gospel people because Jesus is about saving and transforming lives. And our lives have been transformed by the King. When our lives are transformed by the King, that means we are good news people. We are gospel people. We are the fruit of all that Jesus was doing. We're the body of Christ, the community of faith, the body of believers. We are the saved, the redeemed, the transformed. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit daily. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. And when we understand that we are gospel people and we live our life accordingly, the words come out of that. The gospel message flows out of who we are, not aside from who we are. So are you a gospel person? Or are you just somebody who's got a gospel message? I hope if, you, if you're saying, I'm not sure, step in to the gospels. Take a read to them and see how and ask God to show you how you can live the gospel, the good news. Because all you got to do is read through the teachings of Jesus and see what he calls us to be. And living that out is a lifelong journey. I'm not saying a gospel person has it all together right now. I'm not saying a gospel person's perfect and without sin. What I'm saying is gospel people are people who are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and are being discipled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Living in the community of faith, a people of forgiveness and grace and love and hope and who are transformed from the brokenness of this world and are striving to live the righteous life that God calls us to. To be a disciple of Jesus is to embody the good news of Jesus and live it out in all circumstances, good and bad, sharing the love of Christ with all. Showing it through our whole life. Let's bow in prayer. Jesus, you promised us a comforter who would come and be with us, who would guide us and equip us and work in us, Lord. You have made us your people. Lord, help us to be a gospel people. The people who live out what you've made us to be. The people who live as people saved by grace, transformed by your spirit. Reflecting the love of God into the world around us. Help us continually to turn away from the ways of the world and turn towards you and your good news and the hope that it all offers and encompasses. Put it on each of our hearts to continue striving to be your people, your good news people. In your holy name we pray, amen.